listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff, today we are going to do something different. I am going to share all of my mistakes as a leader, and you're going to make fun of them. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, that's not different at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And given your tight control of our, our time, I mean, how are we going to get all that done? <laughs> we need a seven-episode series for that, right? <laughs> mm, you can't let me have all the fun, so... <laughs> I'll throw a few of, of my own in and a few that I've observed. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I set it up that way for fun. But but the reality is I want to go, go broader than certainly our own our own foibles. I use the word foibles, which I just kind of like the word. But it, you it's know, a good we want, word. We want to talk about leadership foibles that – I can't even say it. Leadership foibles that undermine growth. Some that we've probably done ourselves and, and some that we've seen. So, And I know how this goes. I made a list of like three or four and you made a list of 78. So <laughs> we have to work through them here. So where do you want to start? You want to start? You want me to start? How do you want to play this game? I want you to start. Okay. So I'm going to start with one that you'll love. I'm, I know you're going to love it. Is underestimating the role of culture. <laughs> I started there purposefully. And this is one that I'll take ownership of. And I actually sort of learned it as the inverse of this, as, as from a successful leader, that I think that Oddly enough, it's when you've got too much focus on what's happening outside the firm relative to what's happening inside the firm. And I learned that from the the CEO of an engineering firm that we worked with 15 years ago. And he had come out of the marketing business development function into, into the CEO seat. And I talked to him about kind of what was the biggest challenge in making that transition. And that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, in my prior role, I was entirely focused on client attraction, client acquisition, standing up new work. And I really wasn't focused on what was going on inside the firm that much. And when I took this seat, he's like, it took me a while to figure it out that I had to pay more, much more attention to really what was happening inside the firm and put more of my energy on on what's happening internally than I was externally. So that's sort of, it's not a specific one. I mean, I don't have like, hey, specifically did this or that, but it's just sort of like this directional energy and where it needs to be placed as the leader of the firm changes a little bit. And I'll be the first to admit that I was probably way too slow to figure that one out and and probably still am. And once you realized that, and once he realized that, what did he change? Well, I think what was interesting in, in working with him, what he did change was his perspective on, well, if you're going to grow a practice, and I've talked about this for him a couple of times, but if you're going to grow a practice, then you have to get buy-in from the people that are going to grow it, right? So you want to grow whatever this practice is, but you have to make sure that the leader is prepared to do what it takes for that growth to happen. And so it's sort of, you've talked about this and you actually probably can speak to it better than me. But just this idea of what are you actually willing to do for growth to happen and getting clear on that versus just talking about growth vaguely and assuming that the people will do what it takes. That is critical. And what is is the firm actually capable of, you know, primarily in the short term, but what can you build towards in the long term? That one is really important because so many leaders try to get their firms to do things that they're just not capable of. 
Well, it's funny you said that. I, I was thinking about that exact same firm, and, I, and I've totally forgotten the story until right now. So when we started working with them, this was like 08, we were working with the new CEO. He'd been there a couple of years. Well, the CEO prior to them, we learned in, in the work we did together, had led the firm on like all these crazy tangents. So like they were trying to sell essentially like culture development, leadership development, management consulting type services out of an engineering firm with engineers. <laughs> <laughs> it totally failed, you know? And so essentially what we were having to do was like unwrite or, or, or fix all these like broken mistakes. And what had done it, it left the culture kind of vapid. You know, people didn't really believe in the leadership at all anymore. Mm. And so we were trying to unwind that and, 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 and help get footing back for people to believe that what the leader was saying was a good idea. <laughs> That's fascinating, man. That There's a book right there. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I, I totally forgot about that, but it was really nuts what he was walking into. And I remember I went and ran a, a working session in Pittsburgh for them. And literally the, the group was so disengaged. I'd never seen a, a working session like this in my life. I mean, I, I did everything I could to kind of just get them excited about the direction that he was trying to take the firm because there just was no energy for it whatsoever. You outlined like two or three things in there that just made my mind explode. I'll try to rein it in a little here. But I, I want to jump on one thing that you just said. And I think this is a, a foible I've seen often and am guilty of it. I don't think I'm as guilty of it today <laughs> as I was in the past. But when new leaders come in or even an internal hire rises to the level of leadership. One of the mistakes that gets made, and it's well-intentioned, but it still gets made, is this undermining of the firm's history. Mm. And by, by that, I mean that the leader comes in and discounts or blames the culture for underperformance or any number of issues, right? We used to do it this way, but we no longer can do it this way. We have to do it this way. And that's the task of a leader generally is to say, hey, we're at point A, but we can no longer stay at point A. We need to get to point B. And convincing the people that staying at A is no longer a viable option that we have to move to B. And then the art of leadership and execution is sustaining the momentum and effort, you know, from point A to B. But so many firms or leaders in firms, when they create that burning platform to get people to move, often focus on the wrong things and the culture is most often the recipient of that blame. And like you just described in your engineering firm, that doesn't go over <laughs> well with the people that have been immersed in that culture, right? That to a large degree were attracted to that culture or helped formulate that culture. And leaders have to be really sensitive to honoring the history of the firm because at the end of the day, those partners that rise to the level of leaders are nothing more than stewards of that culture, of that brand, of that history. And you really 
have to be cognizant of that responsibility. And I've seen so many leaders just discount things that they probably assumed were not important to the people, but were so intrinsic to how those individuals saw themselves and being part of something bigger than themselves. And it just destroys firms and in particular motivation, as you just described. Do you have any examples on that? It's really interesting because it seems like you're saying essentially you have to take the good things from the history that you can to go forward. And somehow there are going to be things that you don't want to necessarily discount, but you don't want to do anymore, right? Because you're saying that that's not working for us. It's working against us. So we have to move in a different direction. But but you somehow need to, to feed on the things that were working, right? Yes. Okay. So I'll give you an example. <laughs> I don't want to use firm names here. Yeah. So I'll try to, to share anonymize story. it. Yeah, anonymize it. Yeah. Protect the innocent, as they say. Yeah. So so there was a great firm that I worked with. And one of the really attractive things about this firm was that it was in a weird location. It was not an urban environment. So getting the top talent to this place required some additional kind of things to, you know, incentivize people to join the firm. It was a great firm, but the corporate headquarters were in a, in a weird place. Well, one of the things that the firm did was create this incredible campus environment. And they provided free meals every day for their employees. And people really loved that. They felt taken care of. And it was really part of the culture that this shared experience of eating in the cafeteria and the firm just paid for everything was a simple but powerful dimension of the culture. Well, a CEO came in from outside and his perspective on everything was dollars and cents. And when he looked at that, it was, that's too expensive. We can't do that. Because it's free, people take advantage of it, they waste food, and we can no longer afford this, we're eliminating that. And just eliminated it. And all of a sudden, people had to pay you know, for their meals. Now, was that a lot of money to these individuals? No, probably not. I mean, they're probably well paid. But the way that he sold it essentially just gutted this shared experience of breaking bread together. And there was so much resentment in the organization as a result of that. Instead of recognizing what had happened and respecting that emotion, he doubled down on it. (laughs) You know, he just said, hey, well, if that's that's the way you feel, then get out of here. Oh, and as it turns out, the the meals, we need to charge more uh... (laughs) because- Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're old school, you know, you're that old culture, not the new culture. That's funny. Wow. And any business person can understand the rationale behind it. Sure. But how it was approached was, it just wasn't effective. And it had cascading effects across the firm. And that decision was a microcosm for this leadership's approach to about everything in that firm. He didn't respect the past and 
because he came from a different type of firm, one that dealt higher up the food chain in terms of the solutions that they sold, he didn't even respect, you know, the buyers and the quality of the thinking that, you know, this firm provided, which was like a double whammy. Yeah, he didn't respect, he, he essentially didn't respect his own people and, and their expertise. And yeah. uh, sounds like anyway, I mean, I wasn't there, of course. It's really fascinating. I mean, it, it's, it, of course, that's an interesting, you know, it goes back to kind of a, a Jim Collins kind of thing, right? And the, I think it was built to last, you know, mm-hmm. you know companies building, you know, building leadership teams from within versus bringing them from outside. And often that's more effective. But anyway, that's kind of a little bit of a corollary, I suppose. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Let's jump ahead. That's really actually interesting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip it around in the sense of like, you know, I really like that, you know, undermining the firm's history or discounting things that might be really important to people. One that also jumped out to me was this idea of, and I think the two go hand in hand, it's sort of not knowing what makes you great. Either not knowing, which is, is really, a, I don't know if that's a mistake as much as it is not figuring it out or working against it. And in some ways, the story you described, it's like lunch was part of what made the firm great because that that lunch was a social bonding experience. It was it connected people together and somehow probably made them more successful teams. You know, we have a, I'm not going to, again, protect the innocent here. We worked with a company that has a large global footprint and it's delivered through franchises. And one of the current strategies that they're, they're working on, as I understand it is, and, I, and I'm not involved at all, I mean, we have not worked with them in years, but it's essentially a direct to to market offering around the franchises. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like it's going real well, but to me, it's it's this example of a firm that that doesn't really understand that what makes it great is it actually has this global footprint that it can leverage to, to scale just about anything. And yet it seems like right now, perhaps leadership is seeing that as a problem, right? Rather than a, an asset. As a, as a liability, not an asset. And so I think sometimes I think leaders actually work against what makes the, you know, the, the firm great in the first place because they don't recognize it for what it is. And you hit the nail on the head with that lunch story. So I don't know if that made any sense or if, or not, but that's was kind of my, my thought is like, you have to kind of get a handle on what makes you, you great and not, not necessarily what makes you great in terms of skill sets or expertise, but what is, what is the fabric of this place that what is unique to us that nobody else has that we can leverage? And, and if so, how do we leverage it? That to me is the art of leadership that drives growth. Mm. It's clearly knowing what your core capability is. And we've talked about that on some, some other podcasts. It's understanding the value that you provide and what your buyers are actually buying. And most firms don't understand that. And then the final element is how do you show up to deliver that? And it's that kind of trifecta of our core capabilities, the value that we provide and how we show up in delivering it that becomes the essence of, you know, culture and reputation and brand, which are all intertwined. And leaders, <laughs> leaders need to take the time to understand themselves instead of just reading a book and 
following somebody else's formula. Well, this is the way it's supposed to be done. So, you know, I'm going to cut this cost out because we can't afford it. It seldom works. Seldom works. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, the, the way you just described that, it's like it's a system, right? You have to be systematic. You have to identify the core capabilities of the firm. You have to understand the value you provide. You have to be clear on how you show up. It's not just a, a quote or a <laughs> inspirational speech, <laughs> right? That's right. I, and, and I would say it's none of those. And, and I've said that before. Don't put up posters with values on them and think you're going to create culture because it just doesn't work that way. And if I come into a firm, one of the first things I tell leadership is, let's work towards getting these value posters down off the walls and let's start living them instead of preaching them. And yeah, that's hard for people. That's hard. Shouldn't be hard, but it is, it is hard. All right. So we have like time for one and a half. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <made> that up. <laughs> so, so here's one. I see this so often. It makes me scream, but the best leaders absolutely positively if they have been guilty of this foible, they work very hard to eliminate it. And it is micromanagement. Oh boy. Yeah. And and, did you actually time out? Could you break that down further for me? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) But here's how you know if micromanagement is happening in your firm. You are going to have a culture of learned helplessness. This is a term I took away from psychologists on a University of Pennsylvania. I think he's University of Pennsylvania. Martin Seligman wrote a book called Learned Helplessness. And learned helplessness is this psychological state that refers to individuals, but in my experience, it applies to cultures. And firms learn to be helpless when leaders begin to micromanage and undermine the decision-making capability of their own people. And human beings are astute. And after, you know, two or three, four times of a leader overruling a decision that was made by someone, and this could be a big decision, or it could be a simple, I'm going to change this RFP that my marketing team put together because I want it this way. That people in the firm reach this point if they say, why bother? It's going to be changed anyway. Why bother? They're going to overrule that decision. Why bother? They're going to tell me that I made the wrong decision or that it wasn't the best one. So what ends up happening is people wait to be told what to do. And that is one of the earliest nails in the coffin for a firm in my mind, because you have these, these firms have these incredibly smart people that are no longer being used to their fullest because some control freak or fearful person says, oh, I've got to make the decision. But the best leaders, in my experience, provide guidelines for decision-making. They set up the the walls, the guardrails for, for smart decisions. And that's where we have 
you know, the values and of the culture and the reward structures, but then they let their people make the decisions, even if they disagree with them, or even if they feel there might be a better way of doing it, they allow the people the latitude to make the decision, live with the decision, learn from the decision. That's hard for a lot of people yeah. <laughs> to allow somebody else to have control. And that, that requires, and this may be our half <laughs> that you said, yeah. it, it requires leaders that are willing to take arrows for their teams, yeah. right? If they do make the bad decision or the suboptimal decision, the leader still says, it was my decision. I support my team. It was suboptimal or we made the wrong decision. Here's what we learned. Here's how we're going to fix it instead of blaming their team for a decision. So allowing the team to make the decision and then supporting them when the arrows start flying is so critical to a healthy and effective risk taking firm. Because to be able to grow and grow faster than your competition, to be thought leaders, and to really differentiate your firm, you have to take risk. And if you have a culture of learned helplessness, you are not going to take risk. You're not going to differentiate mm. yourself. You're not going to be thought leaders. So you need to allow people to make mistakes and support them in making those mistakes. It seems like Management 101 but so many leaders, as we've talked in the earlier podcasts, are fearful. Yeah. So they don't have the courage to allow their people to fail and support them. It's interesting because I hadn't made that mental leap until you said it. But it, you know, the, the notion of learned helplessness being dysfunctional, but the idea that it actually kills risk taking is sort of the layer beyond that, right? It, it, it goes deeper. And also you were talking about taking arrows, you know, it's funny, just yesterday I was, I was chatting with my, my boys about this for whatever reason. And I just told them, I said, Hey, you know, guys, great leaders, and this is a simple concept and I'm sure it's been said a thousand times, great leaders take blame and deflect praise, right? So it's, you know, when, when, when stuff goes bad, you own it. Say, so, yep, yep, yep. So it was my call. We screwed it up, blah, 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 blah. It's my, I'm the reason, right? And when things go well, you instantly deflect it. You say, well, you know, it was really the team. <laughs> the team did this, not me, right? I don't know. It's, to me, it's one of those kind of very simple lessons in leadership is if you, as you can own that simple concept, you're probably going to be a better leader than you would have been otherwise. That is the art of leadership in my mind. And yep. you can't do that unless you have some self-confidence. And it, you know that, that works up the, up the chain and down the chain. And the CEO is going to be the one who sets the tone because he's going to be supporting his leadership team. And that leadership team is going to be supporting their individual leaders. But if the CEO is creating this micromanagement, distrustful, you made a dumb decision type of culture, man, that moves through a firm like a wildfire, just burning everything in its path. Yeah. Well, we, we are dangerously close to slipping into successes, right? And I don't want to do that. I'm going to wrap us up. And then when we get back together next week, what I want to do is, as we often do, is flip the coin on this, right? We, we, we expose some foibles, not knowing what makes you great, undermining firm history, 
micromanagement. I think that was a big one. It's funny. It didn't make my list, which is it's kind of hilarious that it didn't make my list given that, I mean, Lego made a whole movie about it with the micromanagers, right? But somehow I missed it. And then also we talked about just underestimating the role of culture, something that, that happens a lot. But next time what we're going to do is if this was the tail side, we'll look at the head side and talk about what the strongest leaders do differently, maybe characteristics, behaviors, some combination of both, what we've seen work from leaders. So, all right, man, this was fun. See you, buddy. See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.